Lord, we thank you for the beautiful teaching of your word that in love you have predestined us and adopted us as sons through Jesus Christ. And we thank you that all the purposes of your will will be accomplished because you are powerful and mighty and capable and competent. And we give you praise for that. I ask that as we meditate and reflect and discuss these verses this morning that you would encourage us and increase our love for you and um, we know that sitting under the teaching of your word will bless us and so we expect that in Christ's name amen, amen. all right we're in Ephesians chapter one let me just remind you that I I am going to make the case or I made the case last week that one of the major purposes of the book of Ephesians is to just encourage the church in love, um, reminding the body of Christ about God's love for them, um, praying for the church to operate in love, um, you know, teaching the church to love uh, the body of Christ. So these are themes that we're going to encounter again, and I think. That's going to be central to our discussion today, even as we talk about election and predestination. Um, sometimes our discussions about these subjects can be a little bit like cold and calculating maybe. And Paul is very clear about love being central to God's purposes and operating this way. So. What I'm getting at is what motivates God in his purposes of predestination and election. Love is what motivates him. So that's found there at the end of verse 4. But let's begin. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So we already talked about Paul and his apostleship by the will of God last week. Let's talk a little bit more about the saints um, I think this should just remind us of our identity in Christ. I think it can be easy to get discouraged and think about our identity in terms of sin and failure. And uh, Paul would begin his letter by encouraging those in Ephesus to remember that their identity is they're made holy by the work of Christ. It's true that our holiness is not yet fully actualized or fully realized in our lives. You know, we see that in our actions. Our actions fall short of the commands of Scripture. No doubt about that. But it is true that we are fundamentally, objectively made holy in the eyes of God because we are in Christ. And uh, the finished work of Jesus applies to us, even as we continue through this life pursuing holiness. Um, so our pursuit of holiness then is not an effort to be something that we're not. Our pursuit of holiness is simply an effort to live in what is fundamentally true of us. And I think it's important to think rightly about that or we can become discouraged. Um, Christ is at work in us bringing about the full transformation that has already begun because of his work in the cross and is guaranteed because of the deposit of the Spirit in us. Um, so Paul further emphasizes this by saying to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Jesus Christ, not and who will be or who should be, 
but who are faithful because it is Christ in us that makes us faithful. Um, so any thoughts on that? Comments? So flowing from that identity then comes the benefit, grace and peace. Um, peace with God because we're no longer enemies of God. I mean, that's the heart of the gospel is not that you need peace in your life because the world, the world is crazy. That's true, but that's not, that's not the most important aspect of peace according to the Bible. It's peace with God. We're no longer enemies with God. And then grace that daily sustains us in this holiness, in this obedience that we're called to live in. And then he moves on. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Man, this is just so rich like even as I'm reading this I'm like there's so much stuff in here that that I'm not even gonna touch on unfortunately but what a beautiful way to begin this letter um, and really how does he he begin he doesn't begin by saying we are blessed although he does get to that <clears throat> but he begins by saying blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ Right, So Paul begins this letter of encouragement to the church in Ephesus by giving glory to God who has accomplished all this. Um, he, he directs the praise to God for the benefits of God's grace, for the love that we've received from God. And I just want to point out that it begins with praise to God. I think it is a um, feature of our narcissistic time our culture that's very like me centered that we think that the gospel is mostly about like the blessing that we receive and that's true but it's it's fundamentally we should begin with directing our praise to the god who has accomplished all of this <clears throat> it's just contrary to our culture um to to not think first about ourselves, but to think first about God. I say it's contrary to our culture. Isn't it just contrary to humanity? I mean, this is how people just operate. They think about themselves first. So the whole effort of work that God has engaged in in the life of the Christian is ultimately a work to transform us to think first and foremost about God, not ourselves. Um, and yet... Even flowing from that, though, Paul is not um, shy about proclaiming the benefits of the gospel. So those two things go together. But the goal of the Christian life is to, first, is to think first about God. 
um, to set our minds and our hearts upon him, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength and mind. And of course, that is inevitably going to cause us to reflect on the benefits that we have received from him. I would say there's a very compact statement about, um, about who God is here in verse 3. So, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, that is a statement that you could spend quite a bit of time just meditating on. So, blessed be the God. This is, which God is he referring to? Yeah, the one true God, which is, he is initially revealed to us throughout the entirety of the Old Testament, right? So it's that God, it's Yahweh, it's the God of Israel, it's the God who's defined for us in the Old Testament, creator, sustainer, caretaker of Israel, um, the one who is faithful and true, the one who is um, abounding in steadfast love. And that God is Father. This is a, a fairly... In, in biblical theology, so biblical theology is how theological ideas develop from the beginning of Scripture to the end of Scripture. The idea of God as Father is a very minor idea in the Old Testament. I mean, if you were to go back to, like, you know, a Jew in, like, 800 B.C., if you were to say, you know, define Yahweh, they wouldn't first and foremost use the word Father, Right? That word is used, I think, only a handful of times, like two or three times to refer to Yahweh in the Old Testament. So Paul is developing this concept of Yahweh God by saying he's father. And he's father of Jesus, yes, right? He's the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. But then what's, going to, what's he going to say uh, down in verse 5? That we are adopted. So he is not only the father of Christ, but he becomes through this adoption our father as well. Um, and of course, Jesus taught us to pray our father in heaven. So what, what things are connected with fatherhood? Protection, provision. Protection, provision, absolutely. Hopefully, hopefully some tenderness. You'd also have maybe strength, authority, love, guidance. guidance, right? These are all concepts that are connected with the idea of fatherhood. And then uh, who has the father begotten as father? And we use that word begotten. We don't mean created, but Christ uh, proceeds from the father, right? That's why he's called Father. That's why Jesus is called the Son. So this is, who has the Father begotten as Father? The Lord Jesus Christ. Um, and the Lord Jesus Christ is the exact image of the Father. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Um, Colossians says he's the, uh, the, the exact imprint, the radiance of God the Father himself. And then you've got Lord. What does Lord mean referring to Jesus? Master. Master. It, it, it also means that Jesus is equal with God. Right? You, you, 
for a, for a Jew to accept the idea that there is one that is equal with God, I mean, that's part of the reason why they crucified him, right? This man is saying blasphemous things, that he's equal with Yahweh. So Jesus is equal with the Father in authority. That's why he is master, Lord, meaning sovereign ruler. It's amazing that Paul can take that concept of Yahweh lordship and apply it to Christ, right? This is a deeply Trinitarian statement here. And the word Jesus, the name Jesus, what does it mean? God saves, Yahweh saves. Uh, and then you have Christ. What does Christ mean? Anointed one, Messiah, right? So, like, these are, this is a kind of verse that, you know, if you're doing your own devotional time at home, you could just read over very quickly. But if you were to just pause, you could spend an entire day just meditating on this statement. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And even the word are in there um, is a statement of relationship between who we are and who this God is. He's not distant, but he's near. We're reconciled to him. Uh, he belongs to us and we belong to him. So there's, there's a lot of beauty in that. So then what is God's position towards those who've received him as God and Lord? Well, real quick, any, anybody want to make any other comments on blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ? Okay. So this God that we've thought about for a moment here, what is his position towards uh, us who believe? He has blessed us, right? It's blessing. Um, you know, we, it's appropriate for us to talk about God's wrath towards sin, but his relationship to us through Jesus Christ is a relationship of blessing. How rich is that blessing? He's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now, there's a sense in which we can say that you don't actually have access to that in its entirety yet. It's being held, you could say, in kind of trust. Um, it's, it's, it's in an account, if you will, in heaven that one day after glorification you will access more fully. Um, but every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places is ours through Jesus Christ. And look, there's a sense in which I have to say here, I don't even have the slightest clue what this means. I mean, we don't yet have the capacity to peel back the veil of this material world and this life of poverty that we are currently living to perceive completely what this means. It's beyond our ability to fathom or conceive. All of the treasure which belongs to God the Father and has been given to Christ his Son is also ours through our relationship to Jesus Christ. Um, uh, this is why... I, th I thought I wrote it down, but now I can't think of the verse um, that talks about our inheritance. Is it 1 Corinthians? Why am I blanking on this? Well, it's okay. We'll, we'll move on. Um, what is the greatest treasure of all? 
in the economy of heaven. It is Christ, but what what do we actually receive from Christ? Say it again. Eternal life. Eternal life. Okay, these are good answers. Salvation. Salvation, but I think there's actually something even greater than that. I think it's the thing that undergirds all of these things. It's God's love, right? What actually gives us eternal life? It's the fact that God loves us. Like, I, I think even more than standing before the throne of God and saying, wow, praise God, I've received eternal life. I think we will, we'll look at the face of God and we'll see his love and affection. And I think that will be the greatest treasure that we receive from God. So I would make the argument that the greatest spiritual blessing in the heavenly places is the love of God that has been given to us through Christ. Um, and I would say all these other things are connected. They, they flow out of that. But if we want to think in human terms, right, um, we, can, we can ponder these spiritual blessings. In human terms, we tend to think uh, very, in very material ways. So think about this. All of the gold in all of the universe has come from the storehouse of treasure in the mind of God. Right? I mean, if you're going to be materialistic and you're like, oh, all the blessings in the heavenly places, okay, well, that would mean material riches like gold and money. Well, all of that has come out of the mind of God. And it's a pale thing in comparison to direct access to the God from whose mind it comes. Um, all the honor in the world exists because God has made it. You know, there's people who pursue honor and fame. Well, there's no greater fame than for Jesus to say, I know you. You are mine. All the pleasure that man experiences exists only as a tiny shadow of the pleasure of being in the presence of God. So whatever pleasure this life might hold for you, all the blessing of the heavenly places exceeds it exponentially. All the love, affection, and sense of belonging, joy, and peace, the, the kinds of things that bring a deep sense of satisfaction in the soul, all of that is infused into the world and is part of human experience because it flows out of the heart of God. All beauty and truth and strength and power. I was just sitting in my office this morning because I put all my stuff together and so I was just enjoying a little bit of coffee instead of the flurry of getting ready for church and I'm just sitting in my chair looking out the front window of my office at just this tree and it's beautiful right it's complex and it's green and it's got some new red leaves that are growing and it's just moving gently in the breeze and I'm just thinking that is beautiful like man cannot create something that beautiful despite all of his best efforts. Even the best painting pales in comparison to the actual tree. All beauty and truth, all strength and power, all goodness, all of that is present in creation, again, as just a tiny shadow of the beauty and truth and goodness of God himself, the fountainhead of every good thing. So... Um, you know, man might look at your life and think that it's pretty humble and low and unimpressive, but 
beyond what can be perceived with the eyes, in Christ you are rich beyond compare. Right? I mean, if if guys like Elon Musk and Bill Gates could really grasp the riches that you have in Christ, they would be envious of you. So this blessing is not ours because of anything we've done, right? It doesn't say who has blessed us because of our good deeds or our works or our efforts. Um, We are blessed uh, only through Christ. And that should cause us to think for a moment about the fact that there is no spiritual blessing for those who are outside of Christ. Um, There is only despair and darkness and weeping and gnashing of teeth. And this is kind of beautiful because you think too about Jesus. Sorry, not the despair part. I'm shifting. That was a bad transition. If, um, if you think about Adam, our federal head, as you know, sort of the fountainhead of mankind, the first man that God made, and our forefather in the flesh, what did we receive from Adam? death, right? Curse. We receive all of the pain and suffering of sin and ultimately death as the the sort of central piece of that. Now look at what God has done in Christ, the new Adam. It's not cursing or death that we receive. It's now blessing and life that we receive. And it's a transcendent blessing. It's not ultimately to even be found in this life. Here we only have adumbrations of it. Uh, It's a transcendent blessing because it's a blessing found ultimately in the heavenly places. No eye can see, no mind can fathom what God has in store for those who love him. Right? These these blessings are beyond understanding. They, they, They defy description. Any any other input on that? So that would be an appropriate place for Paul to just stop. But look what he does. Even as. um, I interpret that as a, a, like a building one upon another. Right? It would be sufficient to say, uh, blessed be God who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Period. Right? That's a sufficient statement to cause us to rejoice. But Paul actually goes beyond that. He, 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 what he's saying is blessing upon blessing is how God relates to us now. We've received every blessing in the heavenly places through Christ, but not only that, we also now perceive this mystery he mentions. Um, it's actually down in verse 8 which I think I'm I'm actually supposed to stop at verse 6, so I will. But uh, this mystery that this blessing that is ours in the heavenly places was actually orchestrated by God before even the foundation of the world. Because God in his sovereign grace selected us for this blessing. So turn to uh, Revelation chapter 13 verse 8 real quick. This is a profound verse. Uh, 
Revelation 13, chapter 13, verse 8. So this is a picture of the beast and people bowing down to worship it. And verse 8 here says, And all who dwell on earth will worship it, that's the beast, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb who was slain. So your name as a believer, as someone who's blessed in Christ, was written in the book of life before the foundation of the world. So Paul is just driving us to reflect on this fact that the spiritual blessing that we've received was established before we had ever even done anything. It's a little bit like Abraham, where before Abraham had done the work of circumcision, God had promised him the blessing. Um, I think that's a significant little statement there. And it's certainly connected, obviously, to God's sovereign predestination in choosing and selecting us for salvation. Why? Well, what would be so astounding to Paul to use this kind of language uh, if it was us who chose God, right? Like, if, if, if the blessing was you chose God and he responded to your choice, um, well, that, that would be an incredible thing. But... Paul is actually elevating our thinking beyond that to say, before you ever did anything, God was at work doing this thing. And um, isn't it shocking to think about the fact that God did all of this knowing full well who you would be and what you would do? Right? Um, I don't know, maybe an illustration of this is like my father-in-law runs a business and from time to time he hires people that don't work out. I'll just say it nicely. They don't work out. And it's because they, over time, prove themselves to be really just terrible, terrible people. Well, if he had known that before he hired them, would he have hired them? Certainly not, right? Like if he knew how this person was going to behave, he would have picked somebody else. God chose you, selected you, to receive his love before the foundation of the world, knowing full well exactly who you would be. So maybe that's another element of the even as. Even as he chose you before the foundation of the world to receive this blessing, knowing what kind of creature you would be. And so the point here is we're undeserving of the blessing. And that makes it increasingly more beautiful that we have received it by God's grace. So God's selection um, produces a particular outcome. You see it there in verse 4. So he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. What? So we could like Scrooge McDuck just like swim in the gold and just, you know, philander and enjoy the pleasure. Right? So that we could be holy and blameless. Um, but here's what I want you to understand. This is actually just another way of looking at those heavenly blessings. Heavenly blessing is to be holy and blameless before God. 
It doesn't have anything to do ultimately with riches or fame. Uh, it's, it's, the blessing is the holiness. It is the devotion to God. It is the commitment to him. It is the ability to be in his presence. So the curse of sin brought to man unholiness and condemnation. Along with that, it brought sin and ruin and suffering and pain and devastation. In contrast to that then, that, that curse, the blessing that comes to us, that's given to us in Christ, uh, brings holiness and blamelessness. And along with holiness and blamelessness, then we find peace, we find joy, comfort, satisfaction, all those wonderful benefits. And the holiness here is holiness ultimately before him. Okay. Um, You know, we're going through the high holy month of pride here in America. The most holy of holy days in our secular culture. And if you want to be holy and blameless before them, you have to do your sacramental things, right? Uh, Wear your pride shirts and go to your parades and all that stuff. Well, as believers, we don't care to be found holy and blameless in the eyes of anyone other than Jesus Christ. And, you know, what other assessment or evaluation of our actions or our behaviors or our identity could even matter? This is why Paul can say, it's a very little thing that I should be judged by you. You know, I know that before the Lord, I'm not perfect, but it's his uh, assessment of me that matters. That's the Grady Root translation. And I think that that's 2 Corinthians. Forgive me for not knowing the exact reference. So it's only before the eyes of God that we care to be judged or accepted. That's the only thing that should matter, right? Hypocrisy flows out of this idea that I want other people to view me well. Um, Holiness flows out of the idea that I want God to view me well and let the opinions of other people be damned. Now, I think maybe Paul has in mind here in this phrase before him, and I could be wrong, but at least as I'm reading this, it, um, as, as I was reading and studying this, it brought to my mind that picture from Daniel chapter 7. And maybe we should look at that because I think it's, it's kind of a beautiful picture if you're willing to turn there. In verses 13 through 14. This is maybe a scene that's familiar to you. Daniel sees in the night a vision. Verse 13 of chapter 7, it says, And behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. Who is that? ultimately Christ, right? Jesus even at his trial before the Sanhedrin says, and you will see one like the Son of Man coming on the clouds. So he's he's claiming to be fulfilling this prophecy. So there came one like a Son of Man and he came to the Ancient of Days. Who's that? God the Father, right? And was presented before him. So that 
jumped out at me as we're looking at Ephesians chapter 1. Um, Paul says that he God has chosen us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. So think about this. The Son of Man comes before the Ancient of Days and is presented before him. Who could stand before the Ancient of Days? Nobody. Nobody could stand before the Ancient of Days. Only those who are holy and blameless. Only the one like the Son of Man. Only Christ. Only God himself. And now think about this. Who can stand before the Ancient of Days? Hidden in Christ. Those who are hidden in Christ, right? We can. Like, there will come a day where you will be brought before the Ancient of Days. Not to say, look at what I have done that has made me worthy to stand here. But you will say, look at the Son of Man who has accomplished this thing to make it possible that I am now holy and blameless and I am able to stand before God. Flip back to uh, Ephesians. So then we get into verses 4 and 5. Okay, we've got, I mean, we've already been in verse 4, but now now we are going to look maybe a little bit at these words that are a bit controversial. So you have verse 4, God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Uh, Verse 5, we had this word, he predestined us. Um... Later on, it says at the end of that verse, according to the purpose of his will. So if you're not already aware, these are some controversial subjects. God's choice, the idea of election, predestination. Sometimes the controversy can be summed up very simply like this. Did you choose God or did God choose you? God chose us. Well, there's a sense in which we can answer the question and we can simply say yes. Okay. Did you choose God or did God choose you? Yes. But we should ask a further question. Who acted first? Who acted first? And I would say that since God acted before the foundation of the world, verse 4, that he predestined us for adoption, that as Revelation 13 told us that our names were written in the book of life before the foundation of the world, I think it would seem very difficult to argue that our choice preceded his choice. Does that make sense? So I guess what I'm saying is like, I think the Bible teaches that we must choose Christ, we should choose Christ, we do choose Christ, but I think the Bible teaches that God chooses us and his choice precedes our choice. Even if we go the route of arguing that God foreknows our choice and then he responds to our choice, the the problem with sort of falling back on foreknowledge, right, is that if something exists in the mind of God, isn't it inevitable? Who can resist his will is what scripture tells us. So what I'm referring to here, what I'm getting at is what's traditionally called or has been called the Calvinistic view of soteriology. So soteriology is the study of salvation. And so I'm presenting to you the Calvinistic view. You might also say that it's the Augustinian view, since if you read Calvin, 
he draws so much of his theological foundations out of Augustine. I mean, he's drawing it out of scripture, but he also references Augustine quite a lot. And I think you could, well, not you could. This, this view is also often called the doctrines of grace or monergistic soteriology. So that's the Calvinistic view. God predestines, God elects, God chooses. That's accomplished before the foundation of the world. The alternative view is called the Arminian view, Arminianism, not Armenianism. Um, Armenia or Armenia, that's a country, not a, not a theological view. Okay, whatever. Uh, now there's a third view. Does anybody know what the third view is? It's called Molinism. Uh, it's named for a Spanish Roman Catholic priest named Luis de Molina. And I would actually argue that Molinism is just Arminianism light. Um, but it, it, it attempts to kind of thread the dividing line between Calvinism and Arminianism by saying that what God knows is he knows how free creatures will act in any given circumstance. So it's not a deterministic knowing. It's simply a knowing that allows him to orchestrate the circumstances that will cause the free creature to choose God, um, which is just a fancy way of being Arminian, if you ask me. Any thoughts on any of this so far? There was a day at Maricopa Springs where if I were to go into it like this in adult Sunday school, maybe half the room would leave, but we've, I guess we've slowly chased all those people away over the years. Not intentionally, but just by teaching. Do you mind if I share a couple? Yeah, of please. So there's uh, John 15, 16, I think. It's good to read in that context. John 15. I would ask you, Jonas, just to talk nice and loud for the recording here so they can hear you. Okay, so in John 15, 16, it says, uh, Jesus says to his disciples, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. That whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. So it's, it's interesting here. The emphasis is on uh, you did not chose me, but I did it. And then there is also the, the, um, the appointment to to bear fruit, and that's not going to be a, you know, you can be chosen, bear fruit, and then stop to bear fruit, lose it, it will remain. And the interesting thing is that it, it ties very well with Ephesians, not only because it says, uh, in love we are chosen and predestined, but also because in um, verse 10 of chapter 2, uh, just before that, it says, by grace you, you have been saved, uh, not of yourself, it's the gift of God. And then verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So it, we did not choose him, he chose us, he appointed us to bear fruit, he prepared the works that we should walk in them, and it's, uh, it's all... It's all in line with this yeah. idea that we are elected to stand before Him holy. Yeah. And that's all because He chose us. And then, of course, 
because he chose us, we are changed, and then we see Jesus and we love him. Um, I'm glad you brought up that John 15 verse, and I've when I brought that one up to people in that are that hold the Arminian position in the past in discussions, what they have said is, well. Uh, that's a specific case where Jesus is talking about the apostles, right, uh, or his disciples. And I, I will grant them that in the argument. The problem with that, though, is that if God can do it in that situation and he's not violated some law of man's free will, then he can do it in any situation, right? So the Arminian seems to hold that, like, the highest good in all of creation is man's free will. And uh, I, I reject that. I don't think that's a biblical, I don't think you can argue that biblically at all. So, uh, yeah, my point there would be, yeah, if Jesus can do it here, then he can do it here, right? And so, It's, it's yeah. in John 15 where it says, I am the vine and my father is the vine dresser. And it's really in line with all the other I am's in John where we don't say, well, he's the bread of life, not for me, just for the first century folks who heard it the first time. Right. The point is, he is that for all of his followers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's good. So I want to try and present the Arminian argument regarding these verses here in Ephesians. And I'm not Arminian, but, you know, if you're going to argue your position, then uh, you should be able to hopefully at least represent the other position so that you can make your argument a fair argument. I think what the Arminian would say here in Ephesians is that God does not choose people for salvation. You see here, what it, what is it it says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, what? So that we can be holy and blameless. Um, again, this is what I've, I've had Arminians say to me regarding Ephesians is, well, Paul's not actually talking about salvation here. He's talking about, um, uh, you know, that, that we would be blame, like that we would have holiness. That's what God has predestined. Uh, but that seems to me a distinction without a difference because... What is salvation other than being made holy in the eyes of God through the work of Christ? Um, if that's what God has chosen to give us, then hasn't he in that given us salvation? I don't know. Does anybody want to take a crack at arguing against that or pointing out how I'm wrong? No, I'm, I, go ahead. I was just saying, no, I agree with you. I mean, right, right when I heard that, the first thing I think is to be holy and blameless, we need to first be saved. If he chooses to be holy and blameless, yet doesn't choose us to be saved, it's like he's that would say God's choosing something that's not going to happen, or he's sovereign over something that he said will happen, which is not going to happen. It's just a contradiction, really, in itself. So, I mean, to be to choose us to be holy and blameless, we have to first be saved, which means he would choose us to be saved. Because if he's choosing us to be holy and blameless, it's going to happen. Yeah, and what I'm saying is these aren't even two different things, right? Like salvation and yeah. holiness and blamelessness. This is all part and parcel of one package, right? You can't give somebody holiness without redeeming them. Yeah. I was just when I talk, my conversations with Arminians are they're pointing out that it's in Christ what was chosen before the foundation. It was Christ is the vessel for all the people that will be saved to be in Him. Like Christ is the, the predestination, and then everybody that believes is in Christ. So that was what was predetermined. It'll be Christ. That, that's right. I have I have heard that as well. Now that you mentioned that, thank you for bringing that up. One other thing I want to bring up because you appeal to the uh, Book of Life. Not that I disagree. I just thought for kind of because this is what happens when you start talking about these things. Yeah. Um, you know, your name was written in the in the Book of Life before the foundation of the world. 
problem with like taking that verse is like what about the same verse in 22 that's or I think it's 22 that says your name will be blotted out from the book of life that, that, you know I, I just don't like using that particular verse as a proof text for it's in there it can't be removed when literally in the same book it says your name can be blotted out if you don't I'm actually not from that verse making an argument for um, like the perseverance of the saints. I'm making an argument that those who belong to Christ, their name is written from before the foundation of the world. Would you disagree with that? Well, if it was written, then it could be removed, and therefore you might not. You were predestined for a time, in a sense, if you're going to say it that way. Um... I just want to make sure, like, well, again, I'm not trying to make the argument about whether the name can be removed or not. I'm, I'm just making an argument about in the unfolding of time, when did this act of salvation occur in a person's life? That's, that's the scary thing. If you saved before the foundation of the earth, well, I can tell you when I was 20, I was not saved, even though my name may have been written in the book, but I definitely was not saved. Right, and I don't disagree with that. Uh, and I'm, I'm not sure what to do with that. We're left with kind of a, I mean, we're left with the inability to understand a God who is not constrained by time, right? I mean, if God chose a believer, that happened before there was even creation because God doesn't, nothing in his mind is new, right? So I, I, you can't, you can't even, you can't even understand these things, right? So. But how do we understand it in the context of time? Something occurred before your moment of belief in the mind of God that determined your belief. That's that's my position there. Is that would you any any rebuttal to that or anything? No. Okay. All right. Um, but I appreciate you bringing in the, the other verse because yeah, that's something we'll have to wrestle with. You said it's in chapter twenty-two, right? Those the, who have their names blotted out. Yeah, it's later in there. Yeah. It's a warning to them. Yeah. Or your name Absolutely. So, I'll make it short and sweet. Sometimes the word, the expression book of life just means this life. You are going to die. But when it says the book of life of the Lamb, there's no confusion. Hmm. There is that. So, that, that would be an argument for distinguishing between different kinds of books of life. Um. Well, let's go back to the, the Arminian argument that you just gave us, right? That it was Christ who was predestined. The difficulty with that is verse 5 seems to say he predestined us for adoption to himself. So I think you're going to have a hard time actually being consistent in your argument right from these verses. That they would say, because I've been that, they would say it's the plural, the church. All the church is predestined to be in Christ. Yeah. So then you just have to evaluate which, which argument is stronger. And I would say that argument seems to me weaker than, than just the clear reading of the text. We're the, um, we're the church. So. Yeah, but the argument is that we're not talking about individuals. We're just talking about the entity of the church. Uh, but again, I'm, I'm not persuaded by that. Um, so again, the Arminian position here is simply that... Um, you know, God is just, uh, it, it, it's man who chooses God and therefore receives salvation. God responds to that. And what God predestines is holiness or what God predestines is Christ and the church within Christ. Um, 
So the Arminian essentially in this verse is, is claiming that predestination here is not ultimately related to salvation, but really to blessing. And um, my argument against that, I think, is the biblical argument, which is like God is God. Like, God can do whatever he wants. There is nobody who can tell him different. Um, you know, nobody will be able to stand before him and say, but the way that you did this, God, violates this principle of free will. Well, where do you even get this idea that man has free will? What do you even mean by that? Do you mean that within this creation that God has made, there is anything that happens freely apart from his thinking about it? Because that just seems completely unbiblical, indefensible from the text of Scripture. So the, Paul even says right here, uh, in verse 5 at the end, according to the purpose of his will. The purpose of God's will is supreme. No one can stand against it. The flow of his will is, is you cannot flow the other direction. All that exists is because it exists in the mind of God. So even if you want to talk about foreknowledge, there's nothing that can exist that is outside of the mind of God. Um, Paul says here, adoption, that's his choice, not our choice. He is very clear. He chose us before the foundation of the world. And then what secured even our salvation? It was the work of Christ, right? It wasn't even ultimately our faith. It was the work of Christ. And, and God purposed that work before the foundation of the world. So what I'm getting at here is like, I think no matter what angle you look at this, all every single view of it comes back to God. He is the first cause of all things. Um, and therefore, Paul will tell us in other places, he gets all the glory, right? Man cannot boast in this work of salvation at all. Um, he's actually going to get into that in chapter 2, verse 9. So, and then, and then I would follow that up and say, isn't it God's right to do this? Like, isn't it his right to do whatever he pleases? I forget the exact reference, but the, there's a verse in Psalms that says, Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. So we may not be super comfortable with some of this theology, but it seems to me biblical. And at the core of it is um, this important idea. Will the creature say to the creator... Who are you to make me like this? Does the clay have the right to say to the potter, what are you doing? Um, and you've probably heard me say this before. I mean, I think every Christian needs to wrestle with Romans 9 um, because it's, it's, a, it's a powerfully humbling chapter of the Bible that really brings you face to face with this God who is sovereign in all of his power and wisdom and glory and leaves you really saying, what am I? Right? I think actually maybe we'll get to that if we have some time. But um, let's not miss this really important phrase at the end of verse 4. What is God's motivation in all of this? It is love, right? So if you find yourself in a discussion with a Calvinist who seems to be promoting a sort of cold, hard, sterile determinism, 
they've really missed out on the beauty of predestination and election. This is a gracious expression of God's love for us. Love brings God to choose to adopt us, to be part of his family. And the adoption is accomplished not even through your faith. It's accomplished through the work of Christ. I think, so Dr. Wayne Grudem was one of my theology professors, and we spent a good time in class one evening talking about why is faith the thing that is required for our salvation? And he points out precisely because it is dependent upon the other object. Like, could God have done something like make honor what gives you salvation? Or could God have done something like humility, what gives you salvation? Well, the problem with those things is that it's, it's only faith that says it is the object with which I'm looking to that my salvation is made secure. So your adoption is not even accomplished through your faith. It's accomplished through Christ and you trust in him. And it's according to the purpose of God's will, we're told here. Um, and the Bible stresses again and again and again the importance of man submitting his will to the will of God, bringing his will into alignment with the will of God. Um, you know, Jesus gives us the great example of this in the Garden of Gethsemane when he says, not my will, but your will be done. Right? Or the Lord's Prayer that says... Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Um, and yet, we can rest in the fact that the will of God has been done. It is currently being done. And it will be done. Right In all things, the will of God is being done, will be done, has been done. And Paul asks in Romans 9, who can resist his will? The answer is, I mean, it's a rhetorical question. The answer is... Nobody, nothing, nada. So that's the whole thrust of Romans 9. Maybe we should turn there for just a moment. Um, man, and this is a chapter that, if you really wrestle with it, should lead you kind of like Job to be, to say, you know, I, I repent, I I shut my mouth. I thought that I knew this God, but now, now that I've seen him in his fullness, who am I to say anything? Right? Um, I mean, we can, I'll have to go fast. Well, geez, I'm out of time. Basically, you pick up in uh, verse um, 14. You know, is there injustice on God's part? God chose uh, Sarah. And she chose um, Isaac, or he chose Isaac, sorry. You know, what shall we say? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. God says, I will have, verse 15, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Uh, verse 19, you will say then, why does God still find fault? Who can resist his will? And what's Paul's answer to that? Who are you? Who are you, oh man? Right? That's not really the answer to the question that we maybe want or anticipate. Verse 21, has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? 
you know, we talk a lot about our rights, what kind of rights we have as humans, what kind of rights we have as Americans. Well, what kind of rights does God have as God? The right to do simply whatever he pleases. Even going so far as to make some vessels for wrath and some vessels for glory. Um, that's degrading. That's heavy, yeah. Verse 11. Yeah. The purpose of election, not of works, but of him who calls. So election is not of, based on our works, it's uh, based on the call of God. And then back in verse 16, the it refers to election, which he just discussed. So then election is not of him who wills, that's our human will, nor of him who runs, that's our human actions, which he just said, but of God who shows mercy. Yeah. So here it's very clear, it's not based on human will. Yeah. Right. Now, tragically, we should say sometimes uh, Calvinists can get really arrogant in this theology, which is like irony of all ironies. Because what does this say? It says that it's all of God. So how could there be any sort of pride or arrogance in accepting this view? Um, this should lead us to deep, deep humility and worship and praise, just like Paul says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, and, and that's where he's going in verse 6, right? To the praise of his glorious grace. Sorry, we're back in now Ephesians. I'll wrap up with this. To the praise of his glorious grace. And then, I mean, I'll just mention that this results in our adoption so that even though Christ is beloved at the end of verse 6, we also become God's beloved. So Romans 8, which comes before Romans 9, says this, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs. Right? There it is, all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we might also be glorified with him. We'll have to end there. Let me pray. God, we thank you for your sovereign will in all things. We thank you that you are God, and we just acknowledge that you are God, and we are not. And um, we give you praise that in your plan of salvation, in love, you have predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ. I pray that this would lead us to give you praise and to rejoice and to worship you. I pray that it would lead us to great humility and that it would lead us to receive and understand how deep your love is for us, that your own son um, paid this price that we might be fellow heirs with him. And I thank you for the riches that we've received in the heavenly places through Jesus Christ, the riches of your love. And I pray that we would live in that in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.